0: Well, today on Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, we are here with Professor Lee Cronin, who is currently a, uh, I believe you hold the Regis Chair of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow, among many, many, many other things. Lee, could you, could you just give us a quick breakdown? Yeah. Sort of I, your, your, your background, if that's even possible to break down in a reasonable yeah. amount of time.
1: I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm English, living in Scotland, in the UK. Um, I, I suppose I've been a chemist. I'm still a chemist. And um, I love doing science, and my research group um, in Glasgow is, I suppose, the intersection between robotics, chemistry, origin of life, alien life, chemical AGI, chemical computation, computing. Basically, being a geek with electronics and also setting fire to stuff with chemicals is probably the way I describe myself at the moment. And, um, and trying to understand what reality is. So I also want to be a philosopher, but I'm not qualified to be a philosopher or, or actually a scientist, actually, but blagging it thus far.
0: <laughs> I mean, given what you've done, I would say it's, uh, it's, it's you're doing a reasonable job blagging it. So fantastic. <laughs> um,
1: I, do, I do like occasionally having a good idea. And you're like, I don't think people give themselves much credit here and there. I keep trying to. I keep forgetting because I want to do the next thing. Sorry, I was interrupting you.
0: No, not at all. Um, was Was there sort of a defining moment in your career in your life that that took you down the current path that you're on? Was there was there a reason you wanted to get into sort of the, the science field and and, and and what was that moment?
1: I, I don't think I can ever remember a time where I, I never really decided to be a scientist. I just kept asking everybody how everything worked and they, wished, they wouldn't give me satisfactory answers. Um, and so I would say, well, why does that work because of that? Well, why does that work because of that? Why does that work because of that? And then I just took everything apart. Um, I had a very, 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 um, I got bored extremely easy. So I just took everything apart I tried to got into everything, you know, um, building chemistry sets, citizens band radio, wind tunnels. But I, I suppose when I was, I it's really difficult to remember your earliest memories, but I can always remember when I, I must have been a, just, just you know, just toddler, I don't know, whatever age, maybe four or five, maybe earlier, um, just at a seaside, and I cut my foot on a, jet, on a broken piece of glass. And it was painful when I remember looking at my foot and the blood, and I was like, so how does this work again, this stuff coming out? I remember taking Coke bottles and turning them upside down and liquid coming out, and there's liquid coming out of my foot. And I know that's a bit bad, but it's not too much. And so I, and then it kind of struck me there that it probably wasn't that normal to look at your injury and go, why is that working? Um, so and that's always what I've been. I spent ages playing around with marbles and refracting light. I tried to build my own CO2 laser once. I set fire to the shed, to the garage, because I didn't have any CO2. And I figured if I started a fire and I trapped it in a cylinder, it would be fine. But yeah, it was, the cylinder was full of soot, so that didn't work. So I guess I've always been creating, breaking things. Um, and I'm just fascinated by the fact I could never put them back together. <laughs> so I guess I couldn't be an engineer, so I had to be a scientist.
0: Why couldn't you be an engineer? That's sort of the path I took. So I'm, I'm curious why science versus engineering. Not that it matters. Uh-
1: well, actually i'll take it back now i had to be an engineer do a lot of science but i think i'm a very good engineer with, with teams so i tend to kind of break things and say right let's reconstruct it minimally and then uh, i love working with people that are good designers and good builders and we kind of interact together so i wouldn't say i'm not an engineer but i think i'm i'm better on the deconstruction than construction so i love working with people to constructing things then say right, right let's take it apart again and remove bits and i'm a minimalist I like to, I like to basically, you know, um, do the minimum amount of work to get the mountain amount of function. And that's something that's always obsessed me. And I think that's probably why I got to origin of life. Cause I was just like, how does, how does this stuff work? It's kind of like, you know, you only have to plant a seed and you have something, you have a plant or a tree. And it's so I, I kind of always got fascinated by the, the intersection of how things worked, how things grew and how to build stuff. But I was poor at building stuff because I couldn't any, get anything back together.
0: Okay. I, I can definitely relate. I mean, I, I took the telephone off the wall when I was like three or four years old, disassembled it across the kitchen floor. And I, got a, I, got, I actually got a reasonable response from my dad on this one, which was, if you can put that back together and put it on the wall, because they were not happy, of course, when they saw it on the floor, and it works... Then we're going for ice cream. If you can't, you're in trouble. So it was actually a pretty, a pretty decent way of motivating and on onto engineering ever since then. So that right, makes yeah. sense. So I can definitely relate. Um, so as we were speaking about a, before we got rolling, you have something called the Chemputer coming out, or potentially already out. What what is this? This is this is a. I've, I've read some things about this, but I'd, I'd love to hear it sort of from from your perspective. You know, where did it come from? What's it going to do, et cetera.
1: So the computer was a concept actually that I came up with years ago. It was just the idea of, I wanted to build an origin of life machine. Um, well, I, we'll go back before that. Before that, I wanted to crack the origin of life. And I figured the origin of life was nothing more than a search problem in chemical space. So you go back to the beginning of earth, there's chemistry everywhere, very simple chemistry. How hard could it be? Just get a bunch of chemists in the labs and test tubes mixing random stuff together not asking too many questions um, this is when i started getting into trouble with my colleagues you know where i wasn't allowed when i was saying no 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 targets just random mixing um and then the, obviously you can spend phds are you know they're very they're they're relatively long not as long in, in in the uk as they are in the us but three four years and i was thinking the labor required to do the experiments wasn't going to work and i said well I need some automation for this, but I can't afford the robot. So it was, about, it was about 2010, 2011. So I started to put together a very basic, kind of digitally controlled um, chemical um, uh, reactor. So I had some, some pipes going into a, into a chemical reactor and I could pour, rather than pouring in the liquids by hand, I could pump them in. I could turn on the stirrer remotely so it would stir, I could turn on the heater and so on. And um, and I remember being interviewed by a magazine called New Scientist. It's kind of the sure. Scientific American, yeah. So in, in the in the UK, and the guy uh, kind of you know um, was uh, kind of discussing what I was doing. And then I got that interview led to another interview with a newspaper called The Guardian, and the and the, so there's all these interviews happening because everyone got really excited about this mad chemistry professor making robots that didn't really work. And the, the reporter read the New Scientist article and said, you're making this origin of life machine. I don't really get what well, you're, you're making this other machine. It's kind of like a chemical computer or a computer. So he inv- actually invented the term, Okay. Um, but then in, in that, in that way, or we'll just characterised what we were doing, but really in, in my head at that time, as I wanted to be able to write code and that code was to control a robot to put in chemicals, according to a recipe. So you have kind of chemical code. So one hand, you have like a Python code, if you like. Back then, it wasn't in Python, it was in LabVIEW, believe it or not. LabVIEW code that would turn on pumps and par- valves, and the abstraction that that led to was those chemicals going in, and I could draw my chemical scheme. And so you had this LabVIEW code, and this chemical code, and they mesh together. And so a computation is the act of taking, uh, you know, a, a, a computer architecture that's well-designed a turing machine or almost a turing machine having some kind of programming language writing some code you know whatever it is a, a, a well-understood kind of data analysis algorithm or maybe just uh, reprinting some stuff i don't know um and it works every time on any platform on the same machine and um and i figured this was what was happening here and it took me really five or six years to realize how to explain that because What do computers do? They do computation. What do computers do? They do computation. Because I kind of thought this was a bit of a bullshit term. And actually, um, the reason why I had to, because one of my, I started a company many years ago that trademarked the damn word. And the computer, even though I was going to make the computer, but they were never going to make it, they trademarked it. And every time I used the word computer, they told me off. And I was like, (laughs) oh, screw you you can't trademark a verb, so it's computation. And I was like, oh my gosh, actually, there." what is computation? It is this specific, mathematically precise thing, but now it's different. Rather than be embodied on silicon, it's embodied in chemistry. And then I became more and more confident about developing the formal methods and the labeling and so on. And this is something I've been trying to say for 10 years and actually been falling on deaf ears for six or seven years of that and what i was trying to say i was trying to say chemistry is great it can be encoded chemists have they have a schema they have an on what's called ontology they have a relationship between what their atoms and bombs representation and mix molecules together get a reaction make a drug make a new material excellent the problem with that is the individual has to have a certain amount of expertise so there's a certain amount of knowledge, and there can be ambiguity. So not anybody could read that recipe and make that molecule. And I thought, well, why don't we just remove the ambiguity? And by specifying you know, um, everything like a good engineer, good chemical engineer, good scientist, because it helped make things more reproducible. And then the chemist kind of started to say to me, no, that, that's, that's completely silly. Um, you can't encode chemistry, chemistry is too hard. It's not uniform, it can't be standardised, and I said, OK, that's fine, um, let, Let's, but let's pretend it can, and I can, continued on to build this base layer, because I was convinced the only way I was ever going to be able to do what, what we now call was artificial intelligence, um, do some kind of learning or understanding, is if we have clean and context data. And this is exactly what AlphaFold has benefited from, where you say you have protein structure and why was that possible. Why is AlphaFold so magical? Well it's not magical, it's just incredibly good machine learning, incredibly good architectures, and they benefited from two very important things, or three actually important things. Number one, protein sequence. Number two, protein structure. And number three, some constraints in the physics to basically go from sequence to structure.
0: And what is AlphaFold?
1: So Alpha Fold is a program where you put in a protein sequence you could get and it would predict the structure without you having to do um, a kind of um, imaging technique that requires crystals or it's kind of expensive machines. You can kind of guess the structure. It's a bit like if you were to make some origami in paper, but not fold it up, just cut it and make the creases, it would predict what the origami would look like because you've cut the paper and you know where the Mm -hmm. creases are. Um, Alpha fold doesn't replace what's called protein structure uh, uh, elucidation, but it accelerates that idea dramatically because of the clean data. And so so, so pr- biology was programmable because evolution invented the genetic code and the ribosome. Chemistry is programmable from the periodic table, but chemistry is a mess, which is not bad. It's great. It means we can do far more, but biology is really constrained. Chemistry constrained by the ribosome. So that's kind of so in a way the challenge i took on was ridiculous but i think it's working
0: okay so and also as we mentioned i is this being actively built
1: yes yeah, so the first computer was kind of well it happened in many different sequences so what happened was i designed the computer in my head i love designing things in my head it's so easy i can imagine it's there it works i went into the lab and I said to the lab, look, I've got this programming language that's going to run on this fictitious robot. Can you all start to play with the programming language? And they said, no, we don't see the benefit. And so I said, okay. And then this was in 2011, 2012. So I went away and went back and said, right, why don't we build some robots and then we'll think about the programming language? And one said, that sounds really cool. And the robots were quite expensive though. And they're quite modular, not modular. They're, the, they were all vendor locked. You had to buy software and other software, and one thing wouldn't talk to another thing. And at that time, people started to uh, play with you know cheap three D printers controlled by Arduinos, typically. Sure. And I Started to think, ah, three D printer has an STL code, which basically allows you to print the structure, the three dimensional structure. Could I turn my motion into a static print? And everyone's like, what? And it's a bit like, well, I'm like, I'm going to take my 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 momentum space and put it into a position space and he said we have no idea what we're talking about. I said okay, look, if I three D print a a test tube of this size and bolt it to another print of the test tube of this size and this size, I can pour my liquid in this end, fill it up, then pour more liquid in, it pushes it into the next one, pour more in, pushes it into next one to next one. It's a bit like mousetrap that game, right? where you have all these things linked together, a bit like a fairground ride even, where you would go from one thing, connect to another one automatically, and you're on guard it's you're literally on rails. So 3D printing the test tubes in the row puts you on rails. No one understood it. It was terrible explaining it. But my group were like, you bought us 3D printers. We're gonna we're gonna 3D print Yodas, we're gonna 3D print, <laughs> you know, all sorts of crazy fidget spinners. <laughs> and Why not? We, might, we might even 3D print the odd reaction. And, and so that got them thinking. So that was kind of the first genesis of the computer. I then basically um, started to think about commercialization. And the process of commercialization I went through, I got some money in the UK. It's really it's quite hard back then. In the UK. It's, I mean, it's hard everywhere, right? I don't want to make excuses. I, I was lucky enough to get some investment, and the investors were like, you're completely insane, we're not doing this. But we like the word. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for the word. And and then, and then they didn't believe I would make the computer work. So I raised money on grants um, and I built it in my lab. So I learned to do software engineering. I learned to do electrical engineering. I learned to do mechanical engineering. I learned to do chemical engineering. And then by 2017, 2018, we had a working prototype. That was the first one. Wow. Yeah, that was in five years. Now we have 50 in the lab.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. And so... Um this is this is formally commercialized at this point. I think I think I believe your 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 company is 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 doing these, correct?
1: Yes, yeah, so I have a company called Chemify. So I kind of started that. Um I realized, you know, um and the previous company was great, they did a great job, they're still doing stuff, so you know it's like when you start com, com- having companies like having children, you don't wish them many you, you know, you want to look after them, you know. Um but what I wanted to do, my vision was really um Although it's great to have a company, I really wanted to get the art, the architecture out of the lab because I could believe it will ch- It could make the difference to chemistry that maybe I don't know. This is sounding sound really arrogant. I don't mean it but I don't mean it to be arrogant. I just want to be. It, it, it could have the same difference to chemistry that the gene sequencing has had to biology, and that's, that's a pretty
0: big. Out. That's aggressive. Yeah, I like yeah. it.
1: No, it's not. I mean, but basically, gene sequencing just allows biologists to make sense of proteins and things. Sure. And all I want to do is stop the chemists having to do all the manual labor and actually take a bit of code and run it. And gene sequencing and molecular biology is no panacea, still, you know, you still have to do some stuff, it still fails. But I figured I needed to find a way to create the architecture and then work out, and this is a thing where commercialization, I'm still on that journey, right? I mean, I'm middle of that journey right now. Um, and, you know, and a chemistry professor at the same time. So I'm kind of like, uh, you know. Kind of got the benefit of both worlds in a way, or the misery of both. <laughs>
0: <I'm> <laughs> probably,
1: I guess it's not misery, but it's like—it's
0: challenging to say the least.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look in academia, it's great to get concepts, what might be possible, and if you want to te- innovate, it has to work. But but actually, I really like innovating in industry or commercially because that requirement for um, for practical implementation at a reasonable cost is what I need for chemistry anyway because I saw all these really expensive robots being built around the world and so all these robots are one-off and if they're one-off there is no incentive to write a programming language and make a standard it's like building html for what for um, when there's only one computer on the planet that can run it as soon as you could run html on everything and so I made a series of decisions when i was inventing the computer first decision i said okay it's going to run at the scale of a human chemist so the, the scale that a human chemist works at i'll make it work at because they will interact with it immediately so like so it wasn't like huge vat or a nano thing it was basically you know good you know cut size right and brown sure. task. so that was the first decision second decision it was a what's called a batch where you turn a reaction on Pour liquid in, would turn the. Pour liquid in, turn the reaction on. Stop. Do the next step. Do the next step. And I always wanted to do it this way. And and one of the reasons why I got kicked out of mathematics at primary school, I think, was because I was obsessed with basically developing programming languages to cheat in math. And so I invented the I invented the computer like a kind of lambda with a kind of lambda calculus in mind. I don't know if it's exactly equivalent, but um. I ended up in the kind of the learning difficulties class because I couldn't do maths. But I I'd invented my own, my own way of doing maths and programming. And actually, through the computer, I was like, oh, I remember when I used to do this and how this works. And so um, I had this kind of architecture in mind, which was a state machine. So you have this first of all the robot was the size of a human or not compatible with human hands right not the size of a human just it was like a re- just a little contraption in a fume hood number one number two it's a state machine so you well defined on off states booleans and all that could work and number three i only use the glassware that every chemist on the planet has access to with some minor modification so the cost of the robot is literally probably not much more than the cost of what a chemist would use right now in terms of hardware. And that actually turns out to be really lucky if you want to scale the technology because immediately all the chemists on planet Earth could potentially use this system and also take their existing lab notebook where they've been manual for the last, you know, whatever years and run it in the robot. So that means all the data they've been collecting, all the literature that was out there works. And what we've been doing in the company is kind of making like a... I I shouldn't call it a large language model. It's not chat chem. It's like a large chemical model, which is able to basically, because I've taught it clean ways of doing operations, a bit like protein sequence, protein structure, magic bit in between, do the same thing.
0: Okay. So, So, like for instance, if I wanted it to make me X and you had the sort of the ingredients for X, it would, it would effectively tell you this, 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 and this, and then it would sequence it for you. That's, that's effectively what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. So the, so the way it works, you have to, tr- you have to, so I, I, I don't like to use the word train because then people think it's a neural net. It does use neural nets, but let's, to, before the neural net, you actually have to develop the architecture. I'm sure there are lots of people who might even be watching this or listening to this go, who are experts in deep learning and all of us use the current infrastructure of uh, the silicon the, the silicon revolution so <laughs> i would say you know no silicon chip no you know no machine learning it, do, you, it couldn't just happen magically you need that architecture so the temptation in chemistry and physics and in biology is to use machine learning on stuff when there is no architecture and that means you're learning on weird things because you've got no standards by having this system we could then because each chemical reaction has a sequence of turn the reaction on. When you turn it off, then you do a thing called a workup where you separate the components. Then when you've got the workup, you do what's then an isolation. and then after the isolation, you do the final step, which is purification. And this is almost like your Turing machine for chemistry. It only has four steps: reaction, workup, isolate, purify, reaction, work up, isolate, purify. So with that in mind, then you can teach it or rather than teach just do chemistry in the literature in different classes. So chemists have taught lots of different reactions that will change particular types of atoms and bonds into other forms, and we get taught that. And there's like a finite number, it's a bit like learning um, a language where you learn a certain number of verbs. There's a certain number of actions in chemical reaction space you can learn. So what we decided, and you learn how to position them. So what we learned to do is we taught the robot, we taught the system, those verbs. It actually, it's quite a good analogy. It's not the chemist will be shouting, "Go, no! It's not a verb. It's a reaction." But it's a kind of it's a it's a particular circumstance. We turn the reaction on, turn it, add the reagents, heat, and then do all the extractions. So we did those, and then when we know had a minimum coverage of chemical space, so we could go. It's almost like a maze. Can I go from here to here to here? Mm-hmm. Just needed to have enough knowledge so I could go through the gaps then when someone brings to me a molecule that has been made before I can determine the route like on Google maps, right? Oh yeah. Or if I don't quite know it's been done before I can guess the route and join up the dots through things I do know. And so you're right. And then you just put in that code and the robot just makes a molecule.
0: That's outstanding. I I'm a big fan of that. Send me one when they come out, I'll I'll try and figure out something to do with it. It sounds really interesting.
1: We have a, Portable version as well. I kind of the problem is, I show when people come to the lab, I show them the big one because it's really easy to explain. And obviously, Chemify is building products, right? And building not just software products and molecular dreaming products, but actually, the hardware needs to look even if we're not necessarily, um, you know, distributing the hardware yet. We might be running it inside in house, right? Who knows? Um, But it looks fairly like the ENIAC might have felt where look that first electronic digital computer where there was probably the size of two warehouses and everything was blowing up and it's not quite that bad but it does it, it does look formidable but what i've also built is a small version called the the puter well actually my student and then my, my in, in the company we call it C3PU 3 C3PU which ah. <laughs> but it's, it's this big and it's much more tractable, and so it has a minimum set of uh, infrastructure for pumping, for adding solids, for adding gas, and for, for to temperature. And you can basically fit in a in a roller case, take it on an airplane anywhere in the world, and make stuff. Why would you want to do that? I don't know, but hey,
0: I mean, my my product brain is going left and right in all sorts of different directions. Why you might want to do this, you could do almost like lab as a service type of deal, or you could exactly. sell these. There's 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 a number of applications, at least in in my own limited understanding of this so, um yeah
1: sorry okay. go ahead i was going to say so exactly that so there's we i imagine that what we're going to do with the chemistry in the end is we're going to go to server farms right so the other thing is right. the other thing that i everyone because i'm in this middle because i'm a really bad chemist i'm a really bad programmer i'm a really bad engineer so when i go and talk to the chemist he'll say you're just shockingly bad at this and i'm like yeah yeah but look this is cool and you talk to computer scientists like you're like you're terrible but I kind of in this intersection <laughs> Where I was trying to explain to the computer scientists why I needed to turn, I needed to take um, the description of the recipes and make a programming language, a Turing complete programming language, and all the computer science like, uh, yeah, of course it's Turing complete. Of course you can do this. And I was like, but no, no, no. What you don't understand is Turing complete with respect to what. And what I meant is that people were taking hardware, hacking on scripts those scripts were only reproducible on that particular instance of hardware. And you get back to the days where you've got ambiguity. So because I wanted a uniform, a standard module, a standard operation, a standard library that I can reuse, I could start to build this hardware. Now, if I could then make it recursively enumerable, I can suddenly make, I have programming logic within the, within the programming code. So suddenly I can um, write loops and conditionals and say, right, if on this, do that, and then when that happens, do that, and have multiple resources and solve the combinatorial graph in real time. So I could basically say have one computer with four reactors, one separator, one evaporator, one purifier. And what you do is like the reaction starts one hour, one hour later the second reaction starts, third hour later, third and fourth. Why? Because after one hour the reaction is done, it goes to a separator, leaves one hour to do the separation, and all the other stuff, and when that's done, go to the next one, and you're sweating the asset. You're able to use all the resources in your, uh, and, and you have to write software to do that. In fact, you probably know yourself that scheduling software and synchronizing things for job running is, is actually really important for the utilization of, of, of digital and ele- uh, physical robotic resource. And so if we can find a way of scheduling that for making more compounds, the chemists can make more molecules uh, per day than they could ever dream of before.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's effectively pushing the machine and putting the machine into overdrive, utilizing it almost to full capacity. And then secondarily, again, in, in, in my own head, I'm thinking, yeah, but if you perfect this, you wrote the software for that, it's reproducible on all the machines. You've effectively open sourced, here's how to make X or here's the experiment I did. Literally, you can set it up identical. Um, you know, in, yeah. and, and the paper is almost in code format at that point. Exactly. Very interesting stuff.
1: Well, one of the things I did before I started the company, and I don't know whether the company likes me for this, but we'll find out in the end, <laughs> is um, with a programming language, I decided I would release the programming language to the entire world. I'm in the middle of doing this right now. And in fact, um, MIT Futures um, gave me some um, help. Not just money, but just mentorship and because and they try to make me more user-friendly. So you stop arguing with the chemists. Be nice to them. I'm like, okay, I think it's good to do that. And because you want to actually enable people to adopt the standards in chemistry, you know, this, it's like any academic discipline. There's lots of competition. People want to be first. People want to do this. But um, so the, and also the programming language I've developed is obvious, right? like is obvious to everybody that that needed to happen somehow. So I think that people are beginning to lower the barrier there and like, there's no ego in it. Say, wouldn't it be great if we just adopt a common language? You can call it whatever you want. You know, you could insert your surname here, just use the same language, right? You know, because then people can start to write their own code to make their own molecules and exchange them. So what we've done is we've been able to read the literature. Well, what I did actually, first of all, is I, I, Used the 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 summer school the the money I, I got from various organisations in Community Futures and and in the UK and so I had some summer schools where I got students to read the literature and then encode it into the programming language and then to basically make and start to make take really popular recipes and encode them and we've made a series of translations they're 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 using um, hybrid models and. We're going to start releasing these KiDLs to the world. Probably about a thousand a week. We have about forty thousand in a database.
0: Releasing what every week?
1: About forty thousand chemical pro- codes.
0: Yeah, I think you said KIDL.
1: Yeah, that's what we call them. So the chemical programs are called KIDL. So okay, uh, and that's the Greek letter KI uh, yeah. DL. Uh, but we just call it XDL because it's like on a on a normal <laughs> keyboard, you just get XDL, and it stands so it's Chemical Description Language that runs in the Chemical Programming Language, and so there's a KDL for the each transformation. So you should be, able to say, oh, I want to make I don't know the drug lidocaine, right? And where's the where's the Chi-D-L for lidocaine? Oh great, I just run that on my robot. I can. There's actually some a company that makes lidocaine in Denmark, and they came to me and said, oh, we saw your paper where well, you made lidocaine using this KDL, can we, can we adopt it and use it? I said, fine. And that, because it, it's a more rigorous way of expressing, you know, um, like what it does, it expresses the conditionals, it expresses what reagents you need. You have a way of putting the batches in there, looking at the quality of the materials in, looking at the process parameters, checking that uh, everything is gone as, as, as you expect, checking the hardware is working as you expect and so on. And the other thing about KyDL, is really cool is basically a human being could take their lab book, where they've just been writing all their chemistry, scribble, 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 and they think they've written the perfect representation to publish, and what we're gonna help them do, and this this is the non-profit version, and I think Chemify will also help academia do this, because it's in everyone's interest. It's a bit like, there's no point in one company trying to own, like, all the knowledge in any discipline, it's not going to work, right? What companies need to do is add value and sell products and sell services to people. But there needs to be an underpinning enabler. And and that's why I'm kind of in these two roles. And the underpinning enabler here is, if I could take everyone's lab book in the world, convert it into KyDL, error check it, say, oh, temperature is missing, pressure is missing. Oh, your hazards are missing. This looks like it could blow up. You may want to put something in there, you know, and then from the KDL, that's like a standard representation, uh, human readable. You can then read it back, but not just in English, in French, in German, in Spanish, in It'd be incredible. We we made one actually that goes from uh, English to Russian, English to Chinese. But given the current geopolitical tensions, I've got it shelved. And we have to have German in there as well.
0: So this leads to sort of sort of two. Qu- Two two sides of my brain thinking of the of this. One is you. It's this is almost like democratizing chemistry as a whole, which would be pretty unbelievable, pretty pretty incredible. But then there's the other side of the brain, which is going, yeah, if you get certain rogue chemists publishing these these Chi DLs for download or whatever, and you can all of a sudden make I cyanide or I, ricin. I don't something that you shouldn't. Most people would would be. It'd be scary if it was out there. It sounds like this. This would be also kind of a, a scary thing on that front, I guess. Sort of depending. So my mind definitely goes to the two opposites there.
1: Well, um, yeah, I've thought about that a lot, um, and I think there's a, there's a quick answer to that. You can all, you can already make it. I'm sure there. Are, well, that's true. That. You can. I don't know if there are any YouTube videos of making rice, and I doubt it. I guess they'd probably take them down. But there's certainly the terrorist handbook out there. Everyone used to download, right? I probably shouldn't say that now, but um, and you know, it's like when I was a kid, I was always setting fire and blowing things up. Um, I just saw actually a, 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 a news report of some poor kid making a improvised explosive with a, with a soda bottle and getting incarcerated for it. I was like, wow, I would have been so in prison, but let's get back. So, so yeah, so right now, there's nothing stopping anybody getting. Going on the internet and finding out how to make stuff, go and make them. That's true. Now, bit, now, what we're doing, I think, um, in the same in the same way, I suppose you can get a drone and attach explosives to it and make some some kind of you know weapon. What I think is really important is um, is to think about why we're automating these things. You that you don't want to be making recreational drugs necessarily using this technology because it's not going to be pure and you have a very high chance of doing harm. Um, but, what, but what it will do to speed up the chemist in the lab in the same way that p- biologists do protein synthesis and well. They do gene sequencing and then they do gene engineering. There's potential for great misuse there, but we've got
0: tremendous a- potential.
1: And, there, and there's, there's a, quite a good way of securing that. So I imagine then the current following scenario, academia can always do dangerous things right we're doing chemistry in the lab all the time it's super dangerous stuff people could die you have to take it super seriously you have to have proper protection body protection eye protection fe- you know face protection hand protection and all that you work yes. in a fume hood you hazard assess everything you do you know you you have to you have to, opt, you have to perhe- uh, uh, adhere to safety protocols that that you learn over many years sure. when you have training so that's the first point. So these devices will be in those type of laboratories whereby you are, you are trained, but just think about it. Imagine 20 years time in one lab, you've got a computer or the equivalent, and rather than having, and they're about to just try and design a new drug and to design that new drug, and they think they've got a killer idea, that's gonna, well, a saving idea to save a load of people, but normally to make the molecule would take them, you know, two years um, because it just takes too long. Instead, they could use a, the system, a system to do it automatically, sequence it so the molecule's ready on demand because have the code, and they could do the biological assay and then make the discovery. So suddenly the, the positive impact on human health just goes off the charts. So that's one point.
0: Well, no question there. I mean, even fairly recently, I, I would imagine if the, if, if the computer was out and we were able to mass produce, et cetera, I would imagine that would have been pretty great for sort of like the COVID-19 vaccines or all the stuff that we were trying to, trying to get as much as possible of in a, in a very short period of time. So no yeah. question that's got tremendous potential.
1: Our, actually, our mini robot, the mini one we made, um, can make RNA. <laughs> uh, really?
0: It can do RNA?
1: Yeah, RNA synthesis. So we could actually, I was joking with the team, we could actually make the Moderna vaccine in barista bot, as we called it, but we were wow. like, yeah, you probably wouldn't want to take it. It's probably quite impure." I mean, you know, the standards that people go through in these manufacturing facilities is tremendous, right? And nothing is left to chance. I know lots of people like to talk about, you know, um, questions about how, what the vaccines do or don't do. But um, in terms of human health and statistics, you know, we take this very seriously. And I know there's a conspiracy everywhere, but but it's just, you know, it's just physics, right? The problem with physics and chemistry is hard to do conspiracies with data. Sure, you do something that you, statistically something happens. When it happens to you, it's a conspiracy. When it happens to a population, it's a, it's a you know, it's a population effect. But not going there, going back to the point, in mm-hmm. the future, when we have these machines, let's say a chemify, basically is like the Apple for digital chemistry. Have you tried taking an Apple machine apart? You know, they've got the wrong screwdrivers and all this stuff and it's all, it all, you know. This is
0: really hard to take apart, actually. I, no. I actually haven't tried, but I've, I've I've seen people. It's brutal. And
1: not, and not only that, you have Tampa machine, you know, you take some iPhones, they've stopped that now because people got stroppy, you know, because everyone's smashing their phone, take it out and you get a cheap, ref- and then they will say, no, this is not an Apple-approved phone and it bricks it. Of course, what Chemify is gonna be doing is making sure that KyDLs are digitally encrypted and and you get user rights management in the KyDL file. You probably could even put GPS coordinates, right? Or require. So if you're not, if you don't have a license to run it at that GPS coordinate, you won't run. It just won't, you won't have. So there's a digital rights management in the same way Netflix are turning off people. Exactly. Sharing the password. So it'll be actually relatively trivial to protect Right now, we don't want to protect it. We want to make sure all the chemists in the world sure. can basically you know, publish and exchange and talk and, and build on each other's work. Do, I, don't, I, I don't know if I like the word democratization. I think what it is, is actually um, just fair exchange, right? Because democratization is kind of like it's like everyone has a right to do it. No, you do not have a right, right. to make a molecule right now if you're not trained. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be an elitist. I'm not, being, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just would like you not to be making those molecules because they could kill you, they can explode They do stuff. However- There's, Exactly. But me as a chemist, if someone has published something in the literature and they've, got, they've had the glory from that, say their nature publication, say it's on the front cover of nature or science or somewhere or cell or the Lancet, and I want that molecule. And to get that molecule, I have to read a, a, a PDF, and the description is not complete and it takes me a year to work it out that is absolutely unforgivable you wouldn't go to github and just say and just and just pixelate all the stuff and just you wouldn't come out right everyone be on reddit go that doesn't work so my vision for computation for academia standard programming language standard description language people implement it in their own modules in their own way but, but adhere to the standard then when they publish they publish code that's executable on any device that adheres to that standard the same way an mp3 is portable on any mp3 players although they don't exist anymore because i use spotify i guess when else does but you know what i mean so there's a, there, there, maybe usb as a usb plug or something like that but even then going now because why would you use usb just connect i think
0: i think it's moving to USB-C, but i don't know it just really depends on whatever it's oh, moving towards sponsor.
1: Yeah, 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 Wi-Fi just I, I, like, I was like, kind of like, was downloading something onto a USB stick on my main computer and putting it on my laptop and I was like, why am I doing this? Connect to Wi-Fi shift. And it was just, and also most of the USB uh, d- discs are made in a certain country and they've all got spyware on the, on the headers anyway, right?
0: Some of them do. I, I think the USB is actually pretty fast. It's usually the drive attached to the USB that's pretty slow for the solid state. Um,
1: we say, well, there, I know one of the, the the I know the person who makes those actually is a Glaswegian, electrical engineer um, who made a lot of those. He's very famous. Is uh, married to his part. His partner's Taiwanese. They now live in Singapore. And, uh, okay. And he's like, uh, he was really nice to me. It he makes it's called FTDI chip. Um, hmm. Uh, Future Technologies Devices Inc. and um, yeah, yeah. So that I blame him. Your drivers are too slow. But what they did is, when people started to rip off their drivers, they brick. They made a bricking mechanism, and everyone was complaining that their their rip off Android, whatever, was getting bricked because FTDI was like, "Please don't steal our our, our IP."
0: it will happen. Yeah. Um, earlier, you mentioned uh, sort of AI, and 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 we've been talking about the computer and i think i think there's a particular there's a definitely a divide in the field right now as to whether or not ai is actually able to help do molecule and dis- drug discovery but i think you might have a pretty sharp opinion on this one what <laughs> what does that look like from your your perspective
1: um okay i mean i so i think that ai is very good at finding hidden relationships in data um and i if you are if um the context is known. And so what I what I would say is that drug discovery appears to be right now very an act of serendipity. Um, and that means that something outside the known happens. So if you're relying on training on the known, you are not going to absolutely predict something in the unknown. You're not because you don't have a training data. It's just like AI is not magic. What AI is good at, I would give is, a kind of interpolation. It will allow you to get new combinations of things that are, you know, so you might be able to twist together some molecules. So you might be able to do something, but I'm not convinced. And I think that this is a, it's not against AI. I have a very, um, um, I'm very suspicious of the way that physics describes reality and the way that computational physicists describe reality with computation. So, so bear with me. So there's this description of reality that physicists say is this reality. Then, and this I think it's the first time I've explained it this way, actually. Um, I've only just come to this conclusion the last few days. So physics reality, great. Computationalists, computational physicists describe that reality in some kind of simulation. Great. So you've got that, so that looks good. Then suddenly you extrapolate up and that you think that basically that computation actually can invent stuff. And what I've been trying to do and actually, you won't see it on here. I'll move the camera. You can see that cube in the background is actually a 3D cube playing Conway's Game of Life. I like
0: Conway's. I, I can see that. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with Conway's Game of Life. That's okay. that's interesting.
1: And it's running in 3D. And one of the things I have that on running in the background is I'm hoping that one day it will actually become a proper life form. Like, we'll start to do things that it's not, it's not predictable in a normal length of time that I would expect you know, it to do, the computation. So uh, there is this kind of question that I have. I, my, one of my dreams, and I know of some the very inspiring computer scientists I know uh, in York, a lady called Susan Stephanie, who I just think she's a total genius. Um, um, and I remember telling her about, I want to make an artificial life form and a conscious. And she's like, I want to too. I want to do it in a computer. And I was like, oh, that's not going to work. You have got enough resource. And we kind of, and she kind of said, but look, all I care about is open-endedness. And I want to write a program that basically does things that um, is so shocking to me that I just never turn it off because it's just so novel. And so one of the misgivings I have about AI is posed now that we are fooling ourselves that it's novel, right? Because chat GPTs, they all just literally make stuff up, which I think is quite good, actually. It, I mean, it might... It, it elected me to the Royal Society the other when I did it last time, and it gave me a prize. And I was like, oh, thanks, chat GPT. I'm not <laughs> in the Royal Society, uh, and I don't have that prize. But thank you for telling me I had that. That was awesome. And it also made up a few nature and science papers I didn't have. And so now how did it do that? Because you'd argue that's novel. Well... It just took stuff that was in the corpus of knowledge and joined it together rather randomly. Is that new knowledge? And this for me is a fundamental question that I'd love people to debate. I would argue it is kind of, if it's new to you, it's new, but it's not new to the entire data set. That matrix multiplication was always gonna give that. If you went to chat GPT and say, please chat GPT, tell me this, and you store the random seeds and all the way it runs through, if you recreate those initial conditions with the same training set, nothing changed. You should get the same outcome each time. Okay. The the thing is, it allow it it has some variation, it has some random numbers in there, or have some a way of sampling a model. Right? There will be some uh, unless Chat GPT has some kind of physical random incorporation, and that'd be pretty cool. That would be mind blowing if they do that. I don't think so.
0: I don't think they do physical. I I think mostly it's based on trans uh, transformations. Yeah. Or trans- tr- transforms, which is a, a deep learning mechanism for, for NLP as opposed to some of the other ones which are yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are it's different.
1: Right. It's tra- but so the question is, when ChatGPT does something that looks novel to you, is it really novel? That's an open question. I think it's provably no, but I think many mathematicians would argue. What I would like to do is to make genuine novelty, which is something outside the set that's never ever predictable from the members of the set. And I would argue that ChatGPT is predictable. It's just a very large database where you can keep recombining. And so, for me, now if you say that to drug discovery, uh, what does that mean? That means you take the known molecules, known drugs, you encode them, you mix them together in somehow, and sure, you can make new chimeras. And actually, you might invent a drug that way. And I might concede the AI has made a drug. But I think it's more likely because those motifs have been t- that if you had a system that could sample members of the of chem- chemistry way out of the set and not even in, in principle generatable from the membership, that you would have a much larger chance of doing something new. And I'm, and I'm kind of, I kind of changed my mind about the hardness of the stance because I'd like to take hard stances to learn from people, right? I'm a very good Uh, And I was like, I've kind of almost changed my mind that in chemistry that you might be able to get some really good um, candidates out from an AI system as long, and this is where Chemify comes in, and my lab, and the rest of chemistry, as long as you can make them. So if you generate a load of... So let's just say you train... You take known molecules, you encode and you train the transformer model, and then you generate lots of other molecules. If you can't make those molecules, you're, you're back at square one. So my dream, initial dream would be my dream uh, kind of, I have this joke, lecture. it's not a joke, lecture, it's real electric. So we do computers dream of electric drugs? And it's like the Blade Runner, like do androids dream of electric sheep? Are they, are androids really conscious, right? Mm-hmm. So could a computer really come up with novel chemistry that um, could basically be a drug? And I think yes. And how do you do this? Well, you do it in three ways. First of all, you basically generate using quantum mechanical methods and your known building blocks a space of possible molecules. Then you only select from those molecules molecules you know you can make. But in addition to that, you allow yourself to not be target driven just to follow the reaction, just mix stuff together randomly. You blindfold the robot say and so it goes what happened there what happened there what happened there and then you have a chance of to describe finding new molecules and new reactions you didn't know could even be generated and I think those three approaches um, together will, will allow us to make AI drugs work and it's super exciting so I've shifted my opinion because I think there's a lot of smart people doing this thing I think is dumb and I must I'm thinking they're really smart and I'm saying that they're that, that's a dumb thing they're doing i think i'm not understanding what they're doing so i'm okay. gonna, their approach and probably uh, t- and i don't mind being dumb if i learn something so i've kind of been poking them just a little bit
0: i think we all start dumb until we learn something so that's, a, that's not a not a bad approach to take you mentioned physicists have a certain model of reality and something that was sort of weighing on my mind these past couple of weeks since we last spoke was you mentioned that you had a theory around time the fourth dimension and the emergent properties thereof can can we dive in there
1: okay yeah that's, that's good that's gonna that's it's completely crazy but i don't think it is um yeah so the traditional notion of time so i think that yeah uh, yeah um I have a really interesting view on time because I actually think I can rem- rem- remember when there was no space for me. And that was like, a, like, you know, and then there was space. It was kind of, I think, a very interesting thing that scarred me for life, right? I don't know. Um, so so right now, the traditional view of the universe is we have this three-dimensional universe in space and we can move in space, right? And so if i got my two hands, I can move my hand here, I can move my hand here, and move my hand here, do that, can cross over, so they're moving in space. Um, and they can go back. So I can go here, go here, okay. So in, in locally, I can go back to the same place. And to move there, I just I, I, I use time, you know, I action in time. And, and if you talk to a physicist and they say, yeah, time doesn't exist, it's just something you measure. Time tells you about ordering events. Um, it tells you about, um, you know, you have to, it's just measuring dissipation of energy, things happening, things happening, you, you generate time. And, Um, For the longest time, forgive the pun, I've always felt that there is, that that doesn't feel quite right, and I wasn't able to put a finger on it. Uh, And I think this goes back to me trying to understand where life comes from. Now, there is a view of the universe whereby the universe has a beginning, the Big Bang, or this order at the beginning. Big Bang, time, everything goes out, and then there's a big crunch. No, universe again you can just go and maybe you can even take those points and fold them around and they're the same so you you go that way you can go all the way back in the universe right so you so you you kind of you and you have so what it kind of says if you really do the mathematics and the logic properly it says there is no free will there is no what in the free will free will, there is no agency there is no consciousness. There is no anything. Really, it's just stuff is happening. It's all it's Laplacian. Like so, Laplace was this uh, French physicist, I think, who basically thought the universe entirely deterministic. And you know, if you in principle knew the position and momentum of every particle in the universe, you knew the universe. You knew what the universe would do forever. Then they said, "Oh, thank God, quantum mechanics has solved that because quantum mechanics is actually random at the bottom." But it's not. Quantum mechanics isn't random it has to be, you have to sample things at that size probabilistically, so there is a probability distribution and it's, you, you, you have to accumulate statistics. But if you really went down and, and tugged on the individual atom, the atom's not doing something magical, it's completely controlled by deterministic equations. So, how hmm. is a deterministic universe capable of all this novelty? And the other thing that I find interesting is for me, my experience of the universe is that the universe is continually generating new things I couldn't predict beforehand at all. You know, although I did make a conjecture for a a retreat I'm going on in a a few months that they said, say something non-obvious that you think would happen in 2028. And I was like, Vladimir Putin will be on a witness protection program in the US. Let's see if it comes true. I don't know what the sequence of events it would take. I think, I think for that, you'd be have,
0: interesting. You'd it's have, an interesting prediction.
1: Well, look, let's imagine that. Vlad, well, the, the reason I said that is, says that everyone sees that Vladimir Putin is a bad guy and he's doing bad stuff. Sure, but he's not a single individual. There's lots of individuals going. So why is he doing what is he doing? It, there must be he must there must be a series of pressures. People don't just act you know, alone. So then, if actually Vlad says, oh, my God, I don't want to be doing this. I'm being forced by this other set of environmental circumstances. I don't want to be at war with Ukraine. Um, I'm going to actually tell you what's going on. And they basically then, I, I don't know. I'm just like thinking, you know, our individual people doing stuff. I digress. Time. So, so I think that, so I'll come to the chase. I think time is the only thing that exists and there is no space. And people were like, this is just insane. Well, hear me out. I move my hands in space, but are, are, they, are they in the same space? Think about it. I'm on planet Earth, planet Earth, spinning. I'm going around the sun. The sun, that's, the solar system is moving through space, through the universe. So this is actually physically new space right here. In front of me is new space. That's space um, with respect to the rest of the universe. I'm traveling through a new part of the universe. And then we go back to the old part of the universe. I have local reversibility. I go back. And and so what we can say is that the, every event is unique in space and time. But if you only think about time as being a thing, um, then space is not doesn't really need to be a thing. Sorry, you
0: were going to say something. Oh, it, it, I think, I think we were talking about sort of the, the local relativity, just, just so f- for people who are listening, it's effectively given that we're hurtling through space on this blue marble, the blue marble is being whipped around by the Milky Way. And then on top of that, the Milky Way is actually expanding itself outwards. Every, every moment is, is effectively brand new space, but locally it, it, it appears to be the same space, even though it's, it's not, is yeah. that, is that about right? Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So space is not reversible. And the physicist's model is locally reversible. But the problem is that we... It, it, and so I I, I I, do agree the measurement of time could be deemed to be emergent. But I'm saying there's another fabric below space that we call time. And what that is, it's kind of like, think about it like a chessboard that's expanding into the infinity of states. And, there's, and that's just no, this novelty space. The, the, the basically, there is this... This um, series, this this kind of imaginary physical matrix of of boxes, where there are continually gener- the, 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 for existence more boxes are being generated, and when you happen to move between those mox- boxes, you do a measurement, and that's what you call merging time. But actually, the box if the boxes weren't being generated by this mechanism that produces a universe, you wouldn't even be able to measure time between them. So why am I saying all this nonsense, right? I'm not qualified to say this, right? I'm a, you know, I'm a chemist. who's pretty bad at chemistry, as I've explained. I'm not a particularly good engineer. I'm a pretty bad programmer. And I'm on, talking to you with authority about time, insane. Well, yeah, but I want to understand the base of the universe. And, and I want to understand how novelty comes in because novelty somehow gets invented by the universe and gives origin of life. But if you go back to the origin of the universe, you have this problem where we just don't understand um, where the the, the, the arrow of time right now is a statistical arrow. We observe that um, if you put some cup of hot water, it will cool down. It's just statistics, it bumps into things, you know. and, And what the physicists say is like, look, at the beginning of the universe it was all this energy and all this really low order it was all this really low order and ever since the universe has been unwinding that and we're going to dissipate into a heat death and i don't think that's correct i think the reason why this is you need four things you need to have origin at the origin of the big bang where was the little you know origin thing you put in it? Oh, sorry you need to of order at the of uh, the big bang so where was the ordering machine putting all the order Then after the big bang happens, you have to have the second law. So this is asymmetry in time, which may be best represented by the fact that you then have this kind of statistical kind of observation of, if you have order at the big bang, the second law kind of comes out. And then thirdly from that, you have time, and then from that you have causation. So time and causation actually come out at the top. And so
0: Hmm.
1: now, now if I, so me, if I act on myself and I'm a macro state, and I actually, I don't know, were able to go to the lab and make a drug at atomic scale and take that drug, maybe you shouldn't, a bad way to look at it, you know, I'm not Heisenberg or anything, but if I'm able to do something to myself at the microscopic level, on the macroscopic level, that kind of breaks some kind of conservation, right? Physicists and philosophers don't really understand this top-down causation. So they're coming up all these things, emergence and all this, and I think the simplest thing is to say, we never see time frozen. So, what I think could, people might agree with. So, and I, and I know that you know people like Eric Weinstein just kind of like to say you know nonsensical things because they're outside of academia and they're heretics, and we ignore them. No, we ignore them because they're generally just making stupid statements. Okay, like
0: the they're fact- entertaining though.
1: Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I, that's fine. But pretending to do it with authority is not fine. And then pretending to kind of go onto the zeitgeist and, and then have these arguments I really makes me angry because really everyone then is this conspiracy theorist. And, and I I don't know, maybe I'm again I'm way out of my depth on this, but what I was saying is that um, speed of light seems like it's constant. Great, because that's the speeds of causation in the universe. So the, you know the, the, so that's one important thing. And the the other thing that we can see is that you can't go back in time. Everything has to go forward, every measurement you make, everything you do, you, it's not, this reversibility is borrowed. Um, and so I think that because you can't freeze time and you can't go back in time and physical processes occurring all the time, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence. I think if you shift your viewpoint to argue that time is fundamental and from time comes everything else, but it's a fun, you know, it's a fun thing. At the end of the day, it's a crazy conjecture. But it's not any crazier than the current construct of the universe. It doesn't violate. I'm not saying that you could go faster than the light. Absolutely not. So you can't. There's no reason for that. I'm just saying that basically you don't need order at the beginning of the universe. But here's a wacky thing, right? So I think space is not space. It's time. It's like, what, what are you talking about? It's like, take the Voyager probes. They're so far away. They're far away in space, sure, we can measure them far away, but they're actually just far away in time. We had a limited amount of energy, we fired them out there, they've gone away, but we could catch up to them if we could, you know, we had enough energy. Um, so that's really interesting that, that time has really stretched them away. And if you imagine, if you're walking, if you drive down a highway and you imagine that highway, the high, highway, you're going in a spatial dimension, but you're driving down, takes time. It took time to build that high, highway in the past. That highway will not exist in the future when it erodes away. That highway is a temporally defined object. And so I wonder if the universe having this size in space is an illusion and it's really just got size in time. And so time only, only has meaning when you can see effect, cause and effect. So I'm wondering if the universe goes around something along the lines of, you have this big bang, everything interacts. Type you know there's a lot of interesting stuff happening you know stars galaxies planets consciousness GPT TikTok and then the universe expands 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 and then when all the particles in the universe are so spread out they lose synchronicity then space se- sequences se- se- uh, fails to have any meaning and you find yourself back at the beginning
0: which begs the question of course if everything is deterministic that means you didn't really have a choice but to do this podcast. <laughs> You're sort of destined from the some 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 t- t- type of beginning of the universe.
1: Yeah. So the initial do the initial conditions describe what we do? Yeah. I mean, it's it's completely nonsensical. It can't be the case. Now, well, why is that? We have to do experiments. As I was going to say, right? We can. I can come up with a lot of these outrageous statements, but really, um, they're just outrageous statements if they're not falsifiable. And so. Um, and that's one of the things I like to do. And I, I'm, you know, I can falsify some things. I'm not sure how easy it's to falsify things about time, but I think we might be able to do things with causation and understand how life got started by generating kind of causal structures, making complex molecules, making memories and substrates. Those memories allow allow the universe to then turn into an evolutionary system, and that evolutionary system acts on itself in some non-trivial way. But I would really love to just do one thing in my life if I can do anything that is build a machine that will generate novelty where you put boring in and you get novel out <laughs> the novelty bot and and um, and I still haven't yet it's like kind of almost like the paradox that I don't that there is in incompleteness theorems and in computation and in evolution and in the in quantum mechanics whereby humans can kind of imagine proofs and things, but they're kind of seen beyond the current event horizon. And I wonder if our ability to imagine things that don't exist yet actually help us construct things into existence. So there's this very weird thing that humans can do that I just don't understand. And it might be that I just spent the last 10 minutes talking complete gibberish, and from that I'm potentially sorry. But there might be an experiment in there somewhere where we can measure... Um, and then we might actually get to grips with, with what dark energy and dark matter are from rethinking this, because all is not well. You know, gravity and quantum mechanics aren't playing well together, so that says something's wrong. There's extra mass in the universe.
0: That says. Something's Every single wrong. time someone says dark matter to me, I I always say, why don't you just use the word MacGuffin? Well, they're describing something that we can't measure, we can't see, we just think exists because our our math our math basically isn't strong enough to to prove otherwise. So it's it's literally like the ultimate physics MacGuffin.
1: So I think that dark matter might have yeah. Well, so I think it, it, it's um, it's mis- it, there is all the, they're, they're calling this thing because ninety six percent. If you're gonna, I, I'm probably gonna say this wrong, but roughly, I think. Ninety-six percent of the mass in the universe is unaccounted for. Something like that. I probably. think I've
0: heard that somewhere around there.
1: It's a large amount, and the reason why it's unaccounted for because on large scales we don't understand the gravitational structures, um, and so and cosmologists have been building pretty convincing computer models. And while I'm saying at the same time you can't um, you can't predict the future precisely or novelty while on cosmological scales, you can predict some features of and and also predict how gravities will form and black holes and all that so but yeah i don't the the dark i think there's more evidence for um dark matter than there is dark energy but even so it might be that this dark matter is this thing doesn't interact with anything that we know of yet and that it's just it's just it might be something that is associated with the the fabric of space if space exists but yeah it's uh, it, we need more observations, and I think we need to basically be able to, to get to grips, um, with those experiments in lab. But if it, if these MacGuffins don't interact with anything that we know, they only only interact with other MacGuffins, then it's like MacGuffins all the way down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as as far as uh, your th- this theory, right? uh, meaning, meaning time, time being the fourth dimension. Let's just assume that it's true. Mm -hmm. Then what, what does that mean for humanity or what would it mean?
1: Well, I mean, so, I mean, I think what I would like to propose is that time is, is the fundamental thing from which space emerges. I mean, I'm not saying that space doesn't exist at all. I mean, I know I can go to my lab in space and come back, but it's kind of interesting that I'm not going to the same lab. It actually, if there's all these layers of space, you have all these concentric circles going out, it's going in a different place. So what it, what I think it means is that um, there's no going back, right? So you get rid of all these paradoxes. no going back in time. And also what it means is that the when the universe is expanding in time, and I'm really, this seems to be the mechanism by, there's some way that we can interact with that mechanism to generate novelty in the universe, new objects. So every time... You know, computationalists and physicists would argue that there is nothing ever new, that you could always predict something is new um, from what's gone before. Here's an interesting thing. Um, When something, so so you've got this known universe, or the set of known things. Whenever something exists outside the universe over here or comes into being that you didn't predict from in here, you can always encapsulate it into your, you expand your knowledge, you know, because it doesn't break the laws. Is consistent with it. But there's always this event horizon and new things happening. Who would predict, you know, that whatever meteorological event or whatever this? And everyone would say, well, it's, you know, lack of understanding of initial conditions, all that. But is it? It, it, Is it because the universe has more states available to generate things and it's scaffolding on stuff that's happened before? The universe is intrinsically open-ended. And so... um, I guess I would like to come up with a conception of that, would allow me to do a test where I'm almost going to have two different mini universes, if you like, or two different experiments where I could um, generate di- novelty at different rates and see systems that had ostensibly the same initial conditions, but as I, as I manipulate them, they, one is more unpredictable than the other. And that would be kind of cool. So I can imagine experiments like that. But what it would say for the humanity, I guess it would say that, you know, the future's open. (laughs) Genuinely, um, it's the way the universe is deterministic but undeterminable, which is kind of nice. So that means that the universe does behave relatively uniformly, it is deterministic. But because the universe is expanding in time, you literally have to have a breakdown of... There's a there must be some breakdown of causality at some level, because you need to because you don't have all the mappings. So that's maybe why. So I'm really interested in breakdown of causality. That's I think how we can measure it. Exactly. So and if, that might help us understand um, origin of life, intelligence, consciousness, and kind of you know an evolution. And they all 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 seem to be related to this same novelty generation problem or what I would call. Um, very simply open-endedness by biology starting on earth it started the sequence of events that connected the very first cell with you know with J- gpt chat J- gpt today why because if it wasn't for that first cell becoming you know going through evolution and then basically undergoing a transition to uh, animals in the sea and then to mammals and then all the way up and then human beings and mathematicians and so on that lineage in time is what when you see chat GPT so when someone says to me go oh my God the cell is so complicated how can you justify it? what do you see when you see the cell I say I I see four billion years of of an object and objects extend through time and time is just another dimension for objects because you know, you have parents, grandparents who did it all the way back, right, to, you know, um, our last universal common ancestors there. So I think that's something that humans, scientists, philosophers forget. They, they think that they're the only instance. But if it wasn't for their history and the history of their cultural artifacts and technology, they would not exist. And that's really interesting.
0: Makes sense. Um, speaking of those are those sort of humans and 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 whatnot, and going back in time. Intelligence was invented by selection. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there won't be any super intelligence without super selection. I believe this is a direct quote. Yeah. Help me out on this one. What are we, what are we talking about when we say this?
1: Um, I was trying to, I mean, I think there are people out there trying to crack intelligence. And I think that they're, I think they mean, what they mean is they're trying to understand enough about how intelligence works to use it in a modular way to solve other problems. And I might even, buy we could do that, but I don't think we really will be able to get sentience. I think the, if you think about the brain, the brain again has gone through this linear evolution. So you've done four billion years of evolution. Then the first brain, first brains evolved, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. So your brain isn't just your brain now; it is the lineage of all the brains that existed. Whoa, yeah. that's a big depth in time, and it's a function of the fact that you um, you your brain um, grew in the womb and then during childhood, great so you've got all that stuff I don't know whether you're a fast myelinator as a teenager or ask you about how crazy you were or not you know um, later and then um and, and then
0: you're teenage also... teenager crazy I got boring later
1: <laughs> right <laughs> uh, I was boring now I'm making up for it um, <laughs> and then and then your brain works in real time so you've got all these different things that your your your, your brain has been doing now if you want to invent intelligence do you need to have create four billion years of evolution and mm-hmm. and invite and selection because selection you survived your brain survived how many deaths have there been so you could survive both how many bacteria have died so you could survive right in the trial and error at every level death is the default in you know it's a struggle to be alive and survival through selection creates um you know innovates things your survival has been due to something in the environment so when you look when you go from the transition to single cell to multicellular systems and then onward selection has got supercharged and now um if you think about the way that we're using we'll take this go all the way to mammals so suddenly we get to mammals and we, we start to make tools and we start to maybe be able to produce language. And you know, when we came to Neanderthals, homo sapiens and whatnot, our, our thumbs become the right size. We can make tools and then basically encode things. And now we start to bootstrap. So the, the first tool makers were like, wow, I have an advantage over you. I can I can use this tool to live longer, get more food, defend myself. And this, what selection allows you to do is invent tools, invent language, invent abstraction, and literally the invention of consciousness, if you like, a conscious thought, is through selection. And when you're making decisions down the street, when you're basically working out who to talk to, what to go bike, it's all a selection experiment, right? You, you think you have autonomy, but selection is in control. And there is a way we can rise above it because we build abstract machines. But I'm just wondering if the architecture of our intelligence has been produced by selection. And until we understand that, we ain't going to get any super intelligence. I mean, I think it's nonsensical. Like, oh, we're going to build a super that understands things about the universe that we don't know. Really? OK, give me an example. And it's just like people generating nonsense above a horizon. It's like it's going to be able to solve mathematical, um, you know, conjectures fast. It's like, well, yeah, but that's a combinatorial search. It's going to do that. It's you're going to... You built it. It's a bit like saying, "Oh my God, we're a super test tube. We're going to do super chemistry." It's like it's a test tube. So when people say to me, "Is AI going to get a Nobel Prize?" I'm like, "No. The person who invented the AI will get the Nobel Prize." You know, you don't give the you know the chemist who used a test tube to get a Nobel Prize for discovering a new drug the test tube the Nobel Prize. So people don't understand bootstrapping. And so what I think I think of, I'm saying about intelligence, which I think is very nuanced and maybe a lot more mainstream somewhat boring is to say that the tools we have are not intelligent on their own when we interact with them we get them to be intelligent the question is can these tools be intelligent on their own no chance there is no prospect have you tried although i can't wait to get barred is it barred or whatever
0: with you're talking about google's new ai Yeah,
1: yeah yeah so i want to get i want to I've been play- getting these chatbots to just talk to each other. I think in the end the univer the internet will just explode and be non-usable within about ten years.
0: You mean the chatbots basically going to war with one another for, <laughs> for some definition, just just stop chatting. Yeah. I think I think that's happened. It's interesting. Facebook actually did that a long time ago. Um they had two chatbots that they got to talk to each other, and it turned out they thought they thought they were they thought there were merchant properties and they thought Oh my God! They're inventing their new language, and it turns out it was just bugs. It was just bugs in the code that they eventually degenerated into no longer speaking English. But yeah, um, yeah. I chat, that. chat Chat GPT is is, is interesting um, for for a number of different reasons. Um, but yeah, that versus Bard, and then I think the Chinese have invented or are, are working on one for, for for Baidu as well. I think it's I think it's every, everybody's go, going after this this sort of new technology.
1: But it's going to be a bit like I don't know if you've ever done this for fun you take a YouTube video download it and re-upload it download it re-upload it download it because it's the way the compression works you only need to do it 10 or 20 times before it's just noise uh you know um and and so I think that we really don't understand the causal structures that give us intelligence we really don't understand this kind of um the scale event the scaling right I can give you, and everyone, all computer scientists hate this. It's like every time I say it at any public forum, they they take me on task. But I would make the, I would say the following, the, make the following statement: that there are more connection, there are more possible connections your brain could make by reorganizing the neurons and the connections in your head than there are atoms in the universe. So, so there's like, so, so that what that mean? You don't, you can't access them all at once, but because you can shift around plastically, you can basically, you've got all these configurations, you've got all this state space available. On a a microprocessor, it's always going to be a compressed version. So these large models are always going to be compressed representations of reality. They're not reality. This is the same reason why the simulation hypothesis is not a hypothesis, it's just nonsense. (laughs) And the reason why it's nonsense...
0: Yeah, say say more about that one.
1: So the reason why the simulation hypothesis is nonsense is that you, uh, first of all, If you're in a simulation, you're gonna be existing in another simulation, another simulation, another simulation. And what Nick Bostrom does, he says, well, I'm gonna assign the probability that um, we're we're a normal person here and I'm gonna do all these probabilities, conditionals, and boom, we're all in simulations. No, there could be one confounder there that actually is not possible to make a simulation that could represent a human being. Now, here's the thing, and this is where selection got there before us. Let's just imagine the following. If, um, and again, this is, I mean, there is a get out clause in here. And again, it's incompleteness, incompleteness, theorems for simulations and mathematics may be similar. So that, let's just say that basically biology is pretty efficient and all the computational capability in my brain down to the tens of molecules have been utilized. And then, you know, you've got DNA in the cells and all this stuff. So basically, um, if you want to replicate, uh, replicate all of that faithfully, right not just statistically make a, a make an average the computer needs to be the size at least the size of the available universe and that's with no time and as soon as time inflates the universe the computer needs to get bigger so the fact we cannot predict the future is probably a very interesting piece of evidence that we can't possibly in a simulation because when we go right down to the bottom if causation is really holding we the infrastructure required to simulate the infrastructure we see is always bigger. So if the thing is always bigger, you're never gonna do it.
0: That's that's an interesting, that's an interest, I never thought about it in that in that particular way. That's an interesting way of putting it. Now, someone um,
1: might say, well, no, you're in a simulation, and really there's this stuff below atoms, and you know, as the plank and all this. I'm like, okay, you can always invoke the simulation of the simulation but um and and i and then maybe a really good philosopher well i mean maybe nick bostrom is a really good philosopher and he can tell me why my argument is flawed but you know i was always inspired when i wanted to make a computer so i'm making chemical computers in my lab for fun i think the only way to agi and any real time scale is to just make a make a make a facsimile of a brain make a gel make a brain gel i don't think consciousness outside of silicon outside of the human brain is impossible. I just think you need to bear in mind the lineage going back to Luca, and somehow you've got to fall that a jumpstart, and you've got to have the configurability of the human brain, because that's why has consciousness now. Let's start there, right? And then when people say, oh, you know, things might be conscious, well, a large language model that's trained over many GPUs, over many hours, many days, using many megawatts of energy, that object, when it's instantiated, is that a conscious entity? No, because conscious needs to integrate information in real time from from one side of its compute to the other. Whereas these models are like infrastructures built over time. Um, and I'm really dis- describing that super badly, but coming back to the the computation, I re- ages ago I wanted to make a simulation of mayonnaise, and so I thought, well, I'll make a simulation. So mayonnaise is a really interesting material. You know, you've got all this. This um, this food and these emulsions, and you whip it up, and you get this lovely white um, pattern that is your mayonnaise. And you could compute, you could simulate it using a, 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 a good physics engine. And the physics engine, you could never quite go the symmetry. You can't get the quite consistency. You wouldn't, it's, it doesn't faithfully reproduce it. You have to put in lots of information. And I thought, rather than spend all my energy with my, you know, my GPUs burning all these megawatts why don't I take the ingredients from mayonnaise, put them in a jar, put a very fast video camera next to it, and were the, the blades so I can make the mayonnaise and actually video it using fast video and watch it. And I wonder if that's a physical computation. And, then, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool because I'm actually physically watching. I can then use a the high speed video to work out what's gonna happen next. I can maybe do it at different scales and get some idea. And therefore, I don't need to do the compute in a GPU and invert some matrices. I actually just watch it happen. And I, I think that's a super interesting idea because what that then does, you can then start to do what's called embodied computation. And embodied computation is what I think um, we are not using enough of in our current revolution. And so it's like literally doing compute with stuff. Um, and, you know, um, and so, so that's kind of a very long answer to the simulation argument, which I don't think is satisfactory to some people because, like, look, you know, I think there, Nick Bostrom had three criteria, but I think one of the criteria is, like, you know, whether you're in a simulation or not, I think he missed the Xeroff one, which is, it's just not possible to make a simulation. And if you, if you are a simulation, what substrate are you on? Where are you? Is it simulations all the way down? And then, and then is the universe computationally at the, uh, computational at the bottom? And I think one of the things I will have to, I want to do an experiment is I want to prove, and I don't even know how to do this, um, that the that the universe is suffers from uh, computational irreducibility. Now this is not the, exactly the same thing that Stephen Wolfram talks about, uh, but it's um, it is similar, um, um, and I'm I'm working on some experiments for that.
0: What's, what's the high level there? I mean, I, you don't have to go through the whole theory. I'm just kind of curious, what, what's, what's the high level on, uh, between, between your definition versus Wolfram's?
1: And mine's much more physically based. I'm not basing it in a kind of, that there's compute all the way down and there are just some, solu- some things have solutions, some things don't. What I'm saying is the universe is not computational, it's physical. And from the universe, you can emerge computation. And some, some of the universe, you can do computation irreversibly where reversible computation allows you to make turing machines right you can do super interesting things you can imagine going back in time you can imagine the simulation you can imagine the metaverse but um it, it's kind of a it's all about substrate and the substrate dependency and yeah. i think that that's very analogous to lineages in time and so in the same way you need to basically layer things in substrates if you take a cellular automata the cellular automata just isn't isn't kind of occurring on its own. It's occurring in a computer substrate. And, you know, you can erase the squares effortlessly just by basically just turning everything off and you can then start it again. But that is not a faithful representation of reality and the infrastructure required to make that. That is something that you are able to emulate, simulate rather in a, in a silicon substrate.
0: Okay. Um, well, given... Given that we've gone to the universe
1: models,
0: (laughs) given we've we've gone gone through some universe models, um, what about aliens? I know you've got a couple of theories around this, and I know that there's something called assembly theory, which which I think I think does relate to sort of extraterrestrial life, um, at least in the in the in the physics world. I think I mean there's assembly theory in computer science as well. I think there it's in mathematics. There's a number of different things, but I think. I believe you have a very particular thought on this, and I'd love to hear. Are there aliens? Are they here? What's going on?
1: (laughs) Are there aliens here? Yeah, according to him. Um, I don't. Uh, um, So um, life on Earth, it seems to be very special, doesn't it? We don't really seem evidence of life anywhere else right now. And so that puzzled me a bit. And so given that the chemistry that is in life isn't that special, um, it is, well, it is special insofar as it's contingent, right? So it's like dependent on the path it got there. But there are no special atoms. There's no, you know, magic. It's, there's no vitalism. It's just chemical reactions well constrained. The, the, it's basically the res, chemist, life on Earth is a result of a four billion year curated chemistry experiment. <laughs> All right. There's a, like... Four billion years of curation in chemistry gives you biology. It was amazing. It actually, actually, it actually was less than that. It was only maybe a hundred million years. We don't know. Um, and assembly theory was a th- probably. Uh, it was a theory that I um, I built a mathematical theory that I built with many. I don't know. Ask me on a different day. I'll give you a different story about how it came about. But it's kind of, kind of, uh, kind of always troubled me actually that I had this kind of description of the universe in my head and I. Some days I kind of saw it very clearly and other days it was just like I have no idea what I'm talking about and it would go away. But now it's pretty clear what it is. And, and the way I got there was to ask a question. And again, I just got in trouble with the chemist to say, what is the largest molecule that I could imagine that could be made naturally, whatever that is, without, without information maybe, without intervention, maybe with no life, if I could even imagine that um and um you know could it be possible to, to to make you know wildly outrageous molecules without life and my intuition was like no it's not possible and when i started talking to people about this they just said no you can do that it's you're, you're talking rubbish of course students do combinatorial chemistry molecules get bigger and bigger and bigger it's natural processes and then i realized for many years i was miss describing what i meant it's like well i didn't just mean making a very complex molecule just one I mean in a detectable amount because I'm a chemist if I can't detect it if I can't do an experiment it doesn't exist to detect a molecule you need to have thousands millions trillions of copies so and so I was really like not communicating correctly so my conjecture is really if I thought are there any molecules that you can make trillion trillions of copies out there that aren't made by biology and the answer appears to be no and I was like whoa that kind of that blew my mind so I started to play with the theory and say okay can I even tell if a molecule is complicated or not and I started to think about this and I went to the and they said oh yes we can use all this information theory and entropy and blah 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 blah. and we'll just count it and we'll look how compressible it is and we'll look at the statistics And I was like this doesn't seem very right and, I, and they were like and it's kind of like this Let's say I, I I ring you up and I say, okay, hey, I've got I've made two new drugs. And you're like, okay, tell me, tell me, what are they? You know, let's say you're a bi you're a, you're working molecular like biology and you want to test them. And I say, right, well, what I'll do is I'll just tell you how to draw them. And you say, Right, and I give you the coordinates for one molecule, and say them, say I have to give you twenty-five coordinates. You write it down, you're like, and they give you the next molecule, and they give you have to give you fifty coordinates, and you're like, and I say to you, OK, which, which molecule is the most complicated? And you're going to go, the one with 50 coordinates. Well, that Seems fair. And they say, and, and you're like, well, Lee, look, I don't, give, sh- don't care about the coordinates. How do I make them? And I say, OK, now I give you the same. And they say I can make both molecules from the same s- selection of styling materials, but the 50-coordinate molecule I can make in two steps just by mixing together the chemicals in two steps. And the 25-coordinate molecule, I have to do six steps. Which is the most complicated molecule now?
0: Bit of a paradox there.
1: The molecule that just, well, no, practically speaking, it's the one that needs six steps because the coordinates go through your eyes, they're Cartesian, you draw them down. In terms of practical steps, Ah. it's like cooking. So then I suddenly realized, like, ah, I... Information theory is only good for information theorists who are trying to categorize things on an on a equal footing. But if the molecule is being made in a random gamish in, in, you know, in a volcano or uh, smoke, maybe something else is going on. So I kept playing with this and I, and I realized if I take a molecule, a big molecule, how do i how do i know it's evidence of life or not or well, what i did is i imagine just cutting the molecule up randomly and then putting the parts together in some kind of order and ordering them and the way i do it is like if I take like the word abracadabra or banana they have re- recurring motifs so what we do is you take abracadabra just cut, cut 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 in the bits order the bits and you can go from abracadabra and the abra is you is is already being produced at the beginning so you can use it again with no extra information so what that means is, like, you're able to take that, that, that word and compress it down. And you do that some molecules. So what I basically would say is, like, okay, what, I'm, what am I saying in very simple terms? Take a molecule, break it apart. The more steps it's required to put that molecule together, okay, um, and, um, you know, maximizing re- reuse. So you could basically use bits again to compress it, if you like, to take the shortest route. Um, tells me something about how complex it is. And that's how a theory started, right? It was a mathematical formalism. So well, how
0: do we translate this to aliens?
1: Well, <laughs> I'm getting there. It's a long way, right? Okay. What you wanted to do is the, the, the reason for look for aliens, right? So the way people look for aliens right now, um, the way that NASA looks for aliens is to look for evidence of biology on Mars or uh, in Enceladus, right? So you want to look for proteins, uh, DNA, amino acids. But what if the alien used a different chemistry? What if the life is
0: different? Silicon-based.
1: Exactly, anything, you know, just crazy stuff. And you wouldn't know. So what I wanted to do is to say, ah, well, actually, is complexity, assembly complexity, the universal alien detection signature? Because I could basically ask is this object complex enough i wouldn't need to uh, go with any assumptions about its chemistry or technology so what assembly theory is the ultimate alien detector because all it does it says i don't care you know it's agnostic molecule detector i don't care where you come from molecule i just want to know how many unique parts do you have and if you have more than a threshold that it's more well the more you have and the more of you i can detect the more likely it is that you've been produced by some evolutionary selection or technological process. And that is uh, kind of how assembly theory was born to go and look for for alien life. Now, in the solar system, we can look for alien life using a thing called a mass spectrometer, which basically allows you to cut the molecule up and weigh the molecule. And what we also found that the weight of the molecule is very very good signature for whether it's made by life. So I think the first step is, the first question is, has this molecule been made by life, yes or no? Can you do that? Yes, we can do that. Great. Right. Is this molecule made, is it an alien life? Well, in most on Earth, you're like, well, I don't know. There's lots of life everywhere. So the further away you go from Earth, if you detect alien life on Mars, you'd be like, wow, I've got life on Mars. That's first step. Now, is the life the same as Earth life? That's the second step then you can then determine if it's an alien or not. But I would say rather than looking for aliens, you should look for life first.
0: Is there, is there not a philosophical question inside of there to, to, to the point where it's like, well, let's just say, okay, it's not like human life in, in the sense of it's not even carbon-based. How would you know to classify it as life at that point?
1: Just by the number of parts in it. That's a beautiful thing. We just say, okay, we completely don't care about what you are. <laughs> Stuff-wise, all we care about is, are you so complex um, that you couldn't have formed by chance? Because if you think about it, if you say you take a coin and you flick your coin and you get heads, you're like, okay, cool. And you flick it again, you get heads. You're like, that's cool, lucky. And you keep going. How many times do you flick that coin to get heads each time before you go, this coin, is there's a cheat. There's someone that's actually rigged this, right? This coin is weighted. Maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 30. If you're, if you're, if you're uh, you know, it depends on your standards, right?
0: So I, I mean, every time you flip it, the chances are still 50-50 regardless of what happened before. But you're right. At a certain point, you're, you're going, this is ridiculous. That's
1: <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. As long as the coin isn't weighted, so it's not, you know, 99.001, know, you know, it's 50-50. So if you keep a tally... You're absolutely agnostic each time. You're like, I've got a coin, I know it's probably worked, boom. Okay, oh, okay, heads, heads again. And you might not you might be in a stream of good luck of getting heads in a row, and then you then when you get to your 20th one, you get heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails. So what you need to do is you need to accumulate enough data to right. population. And that so that's really a nice way of looking. So what assembly theory allows you to do is to determine if an object has been created by selection or not. And then we then started to think about it not just as a diagnostic tool to measure aliveness, we started to realize that assembly theory tells us about causation at the bottom, and how causation emerges from interactions all the way up to create objects, and how those objects interact with each other. And um, I'm working with a team at ASU led by Sarah Walker and, um, mm-hmm. with, with her with her team and and, and also some people at SFI, as well as in Glasgow. And we're beginning to realize that that assembly theory appears to tell us about order, well, not, sorry, complexity um, and propagation of of causation or or dependency on the past. It tells us about how to quantify initial conditions and understand that. So that means assembly is actually superior to entropy entropy only tells you what you lost and you have to label it. Where assembly, you don't have to label things because you, you, you can see when you count disorder, you know that that's produced in time. And, what and this is what got me crazy about time is I realized that a set highly assembled objects, the higher the assembly index, the more time was required to make that object in the first place. And that's how it's become a theory of physics of aliens and kind of thinking about time. And given that we, I'm not a physicist, I don't know anything about time, and we haven't found any aliens. It could be a really, really, really poor theory, but there's a really interesting thing, which is kind of cool in that I've got this abstract theory, a number of parts, I was able to go to the lab and measure the assembly indexes of all the molecules in the lab using what, in chemistry, spectroscopic techniques, a so way of counting the parts of the molecule. We get a, a very good correlation. So I'm like, oh my God. I'm talking crazy stuff about this theory, but actually, it's measurable. Molecules have an intrinsic complexity you can only measure using assembly theory or assembly theoretic approaches, and it's, it's there. It's like measuring the force of gravity between two objects. So uh, is, it, is measuring the assembly and uh, like measuring the amount of selection it's undergone in time? Yeah, and that's okay. why I'm like... My brain is short circuited because I don't know what to do with that right now.
0: That's fair. Assembly theory and even science aside. You think aliens have ever been here? For some definition of alien?
1: I don't know. I I I I think it's um um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I, I do not believe in aliens. I've seen no evidence. So if I'm being honest, I mean it's like You know, I felt like saying, just for fun, see how many extra Twitter followers I could get by saying, yeah, aliens definitely exist, right? (laughs) Uh, Because, um, but I haven't seen any evidence at all that suggests that aliens have been here. Now, um,
0: sort of leads us into the Fermi paradox of, you know, if, if they are, why haven't we seen them? Or is it just too far away? There's, there's a number of different things inside of there, but yeah.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, but let's, I'll, I'll come back to another thing and I don't know yet. So I I actually started to map all life on earth using assembly theory, which is kind of cool because that means we can not, we don't just use standard taxonomy or gene sequencing. We can use assembly theory to map the tree of life. We might, it's not unheard because we haven't looked for life yet. Right? So the only way you can find life on earth is use your eyes and microscope. Does it grow, you know, kill it and so on? Can you sequence it? Can you draw it? Now there might be other molecules, other versions of life out there. We just can't interact with it. I'm not saying hyper-dimensional aliens, but there might be, it's conceivable, but not pl- not likely, I would guess, if I was gonna bet on it. But let's say it's conceivable, there are alien microbes on, life, on Earth, or microbes on Earth that we have never seen before because we can't gene-sequence them, we can't be in the Earth's crust. And could it be that, um, I don't know, Earth was formed from the death of another star and other planets, and they could have been the life beforehand, and some of that life is in the Earth's crust somewhere, and we could detect it and find it. Um, maybe. I don't
0: know. Or maybe I don't know. Maybe that's the reason that the two amino acids decided to form a protein X billion or 100 million or whatever it was years ago, when, when, when life actually evolved.
1: I, I think that having life dependent on life gets very, it gets you into this crazy book I've got, which I've got here, which is this crazy book, which I bought, in I found in Paris in the bookshop, which is like The Intelligent Universe by Fred Hoyle. And Fred Hoyle is mm-hmm. basically an alien micro-creationist. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Fred Hoyle always got the Nobel Prize for physics, right? He was able to, he was a brilliant physicist, but but basically hated the Big Bang and just thought that life was here everywhere. And there are microwaves everywhere in the universe. And it there's we see no evidence for that so to answer your question concretely i have seen no evidence for it but however before i started to think about assembly theory i'd seen no evidence for complex often i hadn't worked out to think about it so i think there are three answers to your question um i haven't seen any evidence for aliens on earth but i've now got a way to go look for them what's super cool right Right. Uh, we we can go look and uh, what the thermi paradox isn't a, i don't think it's just basically because thermi had a limited imagination when it came to chemistry and complexity and that um and thermi assumed that basically rather egocentrically that aliens would be broadcasting radio waves and doing all sorts of random stuff that we would detect and if assembly theory is right the way that the content that we are so contingent on our past aliens might not even know what prime numbers are i, I you know our prime numbers you know one of the things I'd love to do right if I can a- a- actually ever take a day off I want to find a physical process that gives me primes. wouldn't that be cool if there was some physical process that just gave you prime numbers
0: be impressive
1: it would, i'm not sure if i don't think there is any physical process that gives us primes. primes are evidence of abstraction, and i would probably i would probably hazard a guess at probably aliens have got primes. They might not have got all the type of mathematics, they would have mathematics that's kind of um, consistent with ours, but not the same. And so I think the mathematics is invented and because we all share the same universe, right? We are all part of the same origin story. We have some overlap in our what we call our assembly space. And therefore mathematics at the very core would share some origins, but I don't think in math- mathematics all exists. It is continuously being created by process in time. So what I hope to do in the next few years with assembly theory is basically map Earth and space um, and um, the other planets in the solar system using mass spectrometry um, to see if we can find evidence of alien microbes. But what we can now do is because we use mass spec, so mass spec is about weighing molecules. We can also use infrared, and infrared is like, you know, looking at heat signatures. But what we've found is the correlation we get with mass spec, we also get an even better correlation for infrared. What does that mean? When you take a molecule and you shake it with some energy, it absorbs in very specific ways, a bit like if you went to piano and you typed a bit of chord, you'd get a particular sound out. So molecules are like pianos. If you hit them with a particular wavelength of energy, you'll get a particular wavelength back, right? Characteristic of the bond. Or actually, more correctly, if you blast it with a load of broad span en- en- energy, it will absorb certain unique frequencies because you're playing the piano with these molecules. So, mm-hmm. if we can make a telescope the size of the sun, right, then, which should be possible, basically use gravitational lensing and just go, just basically bung a detector quite far away from Earth. You're probably more likely to do it with the Earth or something, or make a, just a big array. But we should be able to, at some point, image exoplanets and look for complex molecules in the infrared. And we might be able to remotely detect alien life using a really big uh, um, telescope that will just detect molecules that have enough complexity. And one of the things I want to design before I die is is an emergency switch. Like, I want to design a gas. No one's going to let me do this, right? It's insane. But I want to design a gas that has so many different bonds in it that if this civilization's about to end, we want to just pull this and put the gas in the atmosphere to say to the aliens, we were here. Because they'll be like, holy shit, why are you absorbing in all this? Like, I want to basically write prime numbers into a gas, which I think I know how to do. Which should be super cool.
0: That'd be pretty incredible. A, a good signature, almost like carving carving something in a in a in a post saying that you were there. Yeah. Um, it'd be impressive. So Last question. If you could manifest a technology into existence, I think, I think I might know your answer. You might've already mentioned this, but if you could manifest a technology into existence in your field, what would that be?
1: Into my field?
0: Is it the novelty? Is it the the novelty generator or is it? uh... Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean,
0: and and again, for some definition of, of your field, your, your your call.
1: can Can I have three? Fire away. All right, number one, I'd like the computer to be, I'd like to all the hard work be done and just be in every lab of the world right now and just people running code. But I think that will happen within, within a few years. We've got 50 in the lab, 50, and chemify is be generating a load. Um, um, I built a computer to build an origin of life machine. And the origin of life machine is a big grid that I'm gonna go searching. So the next technology I need, and I've already built one as well, but I'd love to have a big enough one where I can create life forms on demand ab initio. So you want a different life form. Um, the other technology that we're working on, I suppose I'm being really boring just to about technologies I'm working on. I would like to make a true chemical configurable brain and basically, uh, and I think I know how to do this actually um, because uh, and make it conscious. And this is, this will drive, this, will, this is a- this is are, you,
0: are you talking about like an artificially constructed Boltzmann brain, something of this nature?
1: Like, Boltzmann no. brains can't exist. Boltzmann brains are, are are as ludicrous as as I okay. mean cre- creationists and Boltzmann and um, physicists who believe in Boltzmann brains same same thing. <laughs> okay. Because Boltzmann brain can't print spring into existence because you have to have the lineage of all the brains going back in time
0: I mean I, I think even the math behind that specifically said even Boltzmann said yeah, it would be heat death of the universe before it would even exist I- anyway yeah,
1: yeah. there are some questions that are so ludicrous to ask you just because you can write down the number doesn't mean you should ask it and I think and for those I
0: mean. listening a Boltzmann brain is literally a, a conscious brain that pops into existence through random events
1: exactly in the universe and it, in but, the universe. And there's no so because there's no causal structure for that. It's just not. It's it's absolutely an impossible thing, right? Well, mm. and 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 when someone says, "Oh no, no, in principle it's possible," you know, no, no, it's just not possible. It, you want to be a creationist, if, but if you believe in Boltzmann brains, you're a creationist, you know. And, it, and it's not an insult to creationists. You're allowed. You're allowed to imagine creation. But the thing I would love to be able to do is to make a chemical consciousness in my lifetime. Yes. And the way I would do this now, how have we become conscious? We move around, arguably the most seminal event, and this wasn't my idea, I think it was, you know, lots of biologists realize, when basically animals came out of the sea onto land, they could suddenly see for distances, and because they weren't gonna be eaten in like a nanosecond or just a few milliseconds, they could see trouble coming. And so selection helped them invent, basically cognition in a new way with time. Um, so you can imagine, remember the past, um, um, see the present and anticipate the future. And if you've got a predator coming towards you, you've got some time to to move. So this cognition, this cognitive, this movement with your brain allowed you to generate um, intelligence in a new way and ultimately consciousness. Now, how do you make a conscious, how do you make an AGI? Well, we put a chemical brain in a robot and it has to walk around the world and just interact, you know, like a toddler and just do stuff. I was like, that's really expensive. But if we could could make a simulation, a metaverse, and attach the brain to the metaverse and move it around, we could probably build a consciousness in a physical form by having it wander around a metaverse. And that blew my mind because literally we are then creating brains in a simulation. The universe isn't a simulation, it's just that your brain is in the physical world, but everything you know is a simulation or or hybrid between you. So that would be something I'd love to create for fun. But I think that causes philosophical issues.
0: It's true. Uh, in, a, in a really simplistic manner, they've they've created a, a one hertz computer inside of Minecraft, yeah. as in it actually functions inside. And they also created Minecraft inside of Minecraft. So yeah, yeah, yeah. some pretty, pretty interesting stuff there. Um, before we wrap up, where can people find you online?
1: Um, They can find me on Twitter, just randomly making people angry, although I'm actually not doing that anymore because it's just it's no fun. But I am I am often trying to say, yeah, I just say random things. So I think it's at Lee Cronin. And you can find me on uh, Chemify, um, chemify chemify.io and croninlab.com.
0: Awesome. That's outstanding. Lee, thanks so much. Uh, We have been standing on the shoulders of giants with Professor Lee Cronin. Thank you. I'm David Mackay.